This morning, we're going to begin the series in Revelation uh, with Pastor Aaron. And so, of course, the scripture today is Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And would you like to rise and uh, as we look into God's word together, Revelation 1, verses 1 to 11. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John writes to the seven churches in the province of Asia, Grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, and so shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. May our hearts be blessed by God's word today. Amen. All right. Good morning. Am I doing all right? You're warm enough? <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't know that he kicked on a normal time this morning, but it is not uh, keeping up so well. So if you need to run a few laps down the hallway just to get the blood flowing, go for it. That's fine. Uh, if you choose to stay, uh, we are diving into the book of Revelation, as we've already seen and heard here this morning. I'm excited about that, uh, though I will say, and this is how we'll kick it off, as I was uh, prepping for this this week and just kind of preparing to, to launch in this morning, Kind of the feeling that uh, I, I was experiencing was kind of like the feeling maybe that you have uh, when you go to an amusement park and you're about to ride on a roller coaster, <laughs> right? In the sense that, right, you go to the park and maybe you see off in the distance this, you know, this massive roller coaster. Oh, man, I got to work my way over there. I got to ride that thing. That looks great, right? And as you get closer to it and you get it, like, you hear the, you know, the screams and everybody having a great time on the, on the roller coaster and you see them coming out of the ride and there's smiles on their face. Maybe they're getting back in line to do it again, right? You wait in line yourself. You get anxious. You get excited about this. Get in the car, buckled up, you know, bring the harness down. Here we go. 
And then the thing starts to take off out of the gate, right? And you just start going, and you turn the corner, and you start up this, this hill, right? And maybe about halfway up the hill, you just start to get a little butterfly in your, in your stomach, you know? Because you, you're looking, and you got a long way to go. You're not even there. And you get maybe like two-thirds or three-quarters of the way up the hill, and this brief thought comes into your head. At least it comes into mind. The order I get, like, why am I doing this? <laughs> I'm too old for this, right? This is, this is crazy. Right, and then, but then you know you crest the hill and you go down. And you have the time of your life; it's great, and you try to ride the thing a few more times before you're done. Whatever. A sort of my experience coming into this, or that was the closest analogy I could come up with. Because on the one hand, I'm very excited because the Book of Revelation is an incredible book. It's got, man, just great challenges and a great message of encouragement and admonition for the church. Man, the book of Revelation has these glorious pictures of Christ, which I trust are going to lead us into deeper appreciation and worship of him and what he's doing. There's this beautiful picture of hope, right, that's in Revelation. It's going to encourage and stir the church on, hopefully. Right, and so I, speaking personally, uh, Revelation, just as much as any other book in the Bible, has impacted me very deeply. It's increased my love for Jesus uh, and just as much as any other book, if not more than most any other book in the Bible, has really shaped my understanding of what it means to live as his follower, especially as his church, uh, in, in this day and age while we wait on his coming. And so personally, I'm very excited <laughs> uh, to preach through this. I'm very excited to have a season where I just get to immerse myself in Revelation again and come to preach you know, the rich imagery that's in this book. I'm excited for what the Spirit uh, might have to say to you, the church, uh, through this rich uh, and important uh, book. Okay, so the, right, and that's the, that's the dominant thing by and far. The, 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 the little butterfly in the stomach that comes halfway up the hill, right, that comes because, okay, for whatever reason, for really just for the last century in the American church, uh, there have been all of these relatively new interpretations, you know, and perspectives on the book of Revelation that have come into the church, uh, which have made the book a little bit more confusing or hard to understand, uh, a little difficult, and has kind of kept us away from the book a bit. And the other thing that's happened is that somewhere along the line, we came, became very kind of insistent on our own particular interpretations of the book of Revelation, kind of became dogmatic, even divisive in the church, the American church in the 20th century, over various perspectives in the book of Revelation. You go back to the beginning of like the 20th century, I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on. You know, world was, the world was diving into two world wars. You had economic collapse, you know, Great Depression taking place. There were major cultural and intellectual shifts that were happening in the broader culture, and the church was starting to take part in some of that. And that was just very unsettling, rightly so, understandably so, for a lot of people. And part of what that stirred in American culture and American church was this kind of fervor and preoccupation with sort of like end-time stuff. And, you know, what all is going to go down in the end times? And what happened is Revelation kind of became this cryptic, uh, code to unlock the secret mysteries of the end time stuff. And we became fascinated with that. And that's what this book became about. And all of our various interpretations and ways of interpreting these visions and images. Again, we became very insistent and dogmatic on it. It became kind of confusing and it became kind of divisive. Which I say all of that to say that, okay, it's just to acknowledge that. 
And as we to say this, we, as we dive into this, you know, really important book and this great book that I'm excited to dive into, we got to do two things. One, we got to make sure that we don't let this book divide us in any way, as it has it had a tendency to do in the past. Not so much anymore, but it, it did have that tendency. So we're going to try to guard against that. And two, it's just to acknowledge that if you've grown up in the church. You know, you've maybe been exposed to some of these various different perspectives and views on the book and maybe have developed views on your own. And so you probably come to these sermons with a very active theological and interpretive grid through which you're going to hear these sermons and interpret even the things that I'm going to say here. And that might make it a little bit difficult at times to understand or to make sense of maybe some of the things we're talking about here. So we're going to have to work through that. I'm going to do my best to try to explain things along the way. And I want to throw wide open the door anytime. If anything I'm talking about here doesn't quite make sense, doesn't kind of connect with maybe what your perspective was, or you have questions or issues, man, my door is wide open. Let's talk about it. And as I always say, throw in a cheesesteak, and I'll talk as long as you want about these things. So I'd be more than happy to do that and get together and talk about it. But I don't want to talk... I don't want to make it more complicated than is because, or I don't want to scare you off more than I, than, than I need to because part of my conviction going into this, not only is it a great book, but I think it's actually a very clear and a very simple book. Or you're going to see in the first chapter, it was a book that was meant to be read aloud in the churches and to be very simply understood by the educated or uneducated alike. And again, it's got such a profound and important message for the church. Uh, so I'm excited to dive in and to work through this together with you. Uh, kind of the plan of attack for this morning. Uh, sorry, today's kind of like an introduction to the whole thing, so it might get a little technical, and i got to fly through it to make sure we get you all home in time for the Eagles game and all that stuff, right? So we're, we're going to use the opening chap- verses of the book to sort of... Uh, lay the groundwork or, or the, lay the lay of the land on what the book is. Actually, the first couple ver- verses in the book are going to tell you what this book is, what it's all about, and really how it should be interpreted. All right, so we're going to dive into that and kind of poke our way around that a little bit. And then I also want you to see, even just in this greeting, how even in that, there's just a, man, just a, a nice, albeit very brief, <laughs> word of encouragement uh, for the church that it was written to and also for us as well this morning. Okay? You excited? You ready? I'm going up the hill? <laughs> All right, here we go. Let's talk about it. Uh, again, just to kind of set the lay of the land here as we go. Revelation 1. Revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, given, which God gave to him to show to his servants. And right away, that word, the revelation, is actually a very important word. Uh, it comes from the Greek word, apocalypsis, which is the word where we get uh, apocalypse from. So quite literally, the opening phrase there is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which is important to point out because that clues us in from the beginning that what we're dealing with here is apocalyptic literature. This is a portion of scripture written in the apocalyptic genre. That's part of the beauty of the Bible is that it's not just one book dumped down from heaven and one same, but it, man, it's a rich book full of poets, you know, like poetry, letters, history, narrative written by peasants and poets and kings and all this thing, right? And we're in the particular genre, which is apocalyptic. 
which is part of why Revelation is a little bit of a challenge, only in the sense that apocalyptic literature is kind of like a foreign language to us. You probably don't spend a whole lot of time reading works of apocalyptic literature. It wouldn't have been so foreign or familiar or, you know, unfamiliar in the ancient context, especially in a religious context, or especially if you had any sort of Jewish upbringing, apocalyptic literature would have been pretty familiar. You would have known what it's all about and what it's doing. But for us who are not steeped in the apocalyptic genre, it's a little bit of a foreign language. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the way I maybe think about this, or to maybe to illustrate that point, I've always been someone who's enjoyed jazz music, all the way back since I've been, uh, uh, since I've been a kid. Yeah, I know. Sorry, Mike. I think it goes back to actually watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood because they always had jazz music going on whenever he would leave his house. You know, so I don't know. So whatever reason, I, I've just always been someone who's enjoyed jazz music, uh, and so I enjoyed listening to it. Uh, I enjoyed playing it as I was studying piano. I enjoyed taking lessons, private jazz lessons from you know guys out in Chicago, and so I just I just really enjoy. Jazz music. And so for me, early on when we were married, Amy and I, you know, a, a, a fun date for me was on, you know, on a Tuesday night going to Chris's Jazz Cafe at 15th and Sansom up in the, up in the city. And we'd go on Tuesday nights. It'd be $2 Tuesdays. You get in for $2. You get $2 appetizers and things like that. And there'd be a nice jazz band playing on the stage and you just sit there and listen. Amy, she grew up listening to Michael W. Smith and Steve Green and those guys, right? So jazz, she doesn't understand it. She doesn't listen to it. And so for her, it's just a lot of noise. Maybe that's your experience. I don't know. But for me, so I can sit there at Chris's and listen to this, and, and I can understand the chord structures and things that they're doing and almost like the musical conversation that they're having. I'm loving it. I'm in my glory. Amy's there. This all just sounds... <coughs> Excuse me. I have Jeffrey's cough. It's not COVID. already had that, I assure you, a couple of weeks ago. Um, where was I? Yeah. And so for Amy sitting there, it's, she's bored out of her mind or worse yet, she wants to talk. I'm like, shh, 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 I'm going to listen to this. All right. <laughs> That's kind of the picture here this morning, right? If you, if you're familiar in apocalyptic literature and you've heard it all your life or you've read other apocalyptic stuff, like you, you know what it's doing, you know how it works and how it operates and what you're supposed to do with these symbols. But if you haven't, uh, apocalyptic literature is kind of weird. Like, what in the world is going on here? What in the world are we dealing with here? These locusts that have that are the size of horses and have, you know, the faces of humans and the hair of a long, uh, you know, long hair of a woman and a breastplate of iron and teeth like uh, lions, right? This is stuff we're going to come across. You know, all this talk about dragons and beasts and prostitutes riding on top of bees. Like, what in the world is all this? Okay, we have to acknowledge apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic genre, is just stuff that we're not too versed in. And we're going to have to deal with that. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Part of, let's, let's get a baseline. What does apocalyptic literature do? What is it? Well, actually, quite simply, the word means to reveal. Hence the name of the book, <laughs> Revelation. Right? What the apocalyptic literature aims to do is to reveal or disclose for you, uh, some deeper realities, deeper truths, deeper dynamics to life all around you. It may, it aims to, in a sense, like lift the curtain or lift the veil or, you know, imagine if you're like looking at the stage and the curtains open wide up and all of a sudden now you see this wholly different, you know, landscape or terrain 
and just to expose to you some things that previously maybe were hidden from view. Kind of the way I think about that, using that analogy there, any of you guys ever been to Sight and Sound Theater out in Lancaster? Right? You know, its big claim to fame is that it has very elaborate sets and props and, you know, all that production stuff. And if you ever get the chance to go see, every now and then they bring it back around, right, their production of Noah, Noah and the Ark. Uh, it's interesting. Our family's been there I don't know, once or twice. We've seen it. No, Kate. No, maybe not. Oh, okay, I don't know. I've seen it once or twice there, and it's really neat because part of you know when you're there and you get to the part in the story where you know Noah and his family get into the ark and they shut the door and the rain start coming, they drift out on the seas. You know what then starts to happen is these curtains start going up all along the side of the auditorium, and not just on the stage, but on the side of the auditorium. As you look to the side, to your left and your right, all of a sudden you see these compartments. And there's all these animals in these compartments. And then all of a sudden coming walking down the aisle <coughs> are you know, donkeys and cattle and <clears throat> all this sort of stuff, right? So that all of a sudden, you know, as you're sitting there, you're realizing that, <laughs> well, you're not just, you sort of get this perspective that you're not just in a theater anymore, but you're in, like, literally immersed in an ark and stuff that you previously d- didn't see, had no idea was there. Man, it's all being... It just totally changes your perspective. And in a way, that's what apocalyptic literature is aiming to do, to kind of lift the veil and to show you some of these deeper things behind life. And this is perhaps one of the most important things about apocalyptic literature. If you don't hear anything else this morning... Oh, thanks, Bob. probably just going to have to deal with my coughing this morning anyway, but um, most important thing I would want to say to you about apocalyptic literature this morning, which I think is going to be so helpful, is that foundational to apocalyptic, or I'll say this, apocalyptic literature is not fundamentally about the future. Okay, It might talk about the future, and it certainly does in the book of Revelation, but as a genre, apocalyptic literature is not fundamentally about the future. It's about every bit is about the present and every bit is even as about the past as it is about the future. And actually what I hope will become very plainly evident as we work through this book is that the book of Revelation as apocalyptic literature is meant to show a different view towards all of life in this period between Christ's resurrection and his final coming. Or in other words, it's supposed to, to lift the veil, lift the curtain up to see, so you can see some of the deeper spiritual realities and some of the deeper spiritual dynamics between all of life, between Christ's first victory and his final victory. We get tripped up a little bit when we look at Revelation as only this book in the future. We see these weird things. Like, I don't know what that is. That must be some strange futuristic thing. Actually, well, yes, in some ways, but actually, and for many of it, no. It's actually meant to show you things about your present life following Christ. Book of Revelation is kind of like this gallery of abstract art, of dreams and visions that are meant to capture your, your view and your attention. Maybe even, dare I even say, like your imagination so that you see a little bit some of the deeper things, the deeper spirituality, the deeper truths about life, all of life, between Christ's resurrection and the day he returns. Okay, so that's apocalyptic genre. We'll talk more about that as we go. 
That's in there. Another word that shows up in these first couple verses is the word prophecy. Right? In verse 3, blesses the one who hears, who reads aloud, who hears and keeps this word of prophecy. <coughs> and all I want to say there in relation to that word is I want to just remember the basic definition of prophecy, which is a word from God to his people through his servant. Again, for a whole variety of reasons, of late, we tend to think of prophecy as only predictive stuff about the future. It certainly does involve that, but it's more of a declarative preaching word of encouragement, of admonition, of warning, of whatever, to the church, through the servant. Very applicable, having direct implication to the present day life. That's why the verse, verse 3 says, Blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy. When you gather for worship, blessed are you that you're reading aloud this word, and blessed are you who hear it and keep it. Blessed are you who align yourself to it, who yield to it, who follow the message of this word, this prophetic word given to the church. Okay? So we're dealing with sort of apocalyptic prophecy. But the other thing uh, in keeping with all of this is that we, that we have to be very mindful of is that the book of Revelation, it's a, essentially a letter written to seven churches. Right? It's this revelation that God gives to Jesus for the, his servants, that's verse 1. We find out in verse 2 that how does it get to the servants? It comes, Jesus sends an angel to show John a bunch of stuff and tell him to write it down and send it in a scroll, a book, a letter to these seven churches. Seven historical, very real churches. One of the things we'll talk about as we get in the book of Revelation is that it uses a lot of numbers, symbolic numbers, and the number seven will show up all throughout the book. It's kind of a symbolic number of completeness, of wholeness. So there's probably a sense that as it's written to seven churches, it's probably intended for the full, broader church as well, too. And so it has direct application for our lives as the church as well. But... First and foremost, it was a letter written to seven historical real churches. And so for us to interpret it well, we've got to understand what's going on in those churches and what is the Spirit actually saying to those churches. We've got to start there as we make application uh, to, our, to our own context and to our own life. Okay? Just a little bit. You with me? Did I lose anybody yet? I'm trying to see anybody sleeping. It's probably too cold for you to fall asleep, which is a good thing this morning. But just, you know, as we think about this, that's the main stuff we're just going to have to navigate through. This is a weird genre to us, not to the ancient listener, reader. Apocalyptic prophecy delivered in letter form to a specific church. It was not our, our church, but has application for us as well. All right, in the time we have left, let me just show you a little bit of how this would have worked uh, in these first couple verses. Let me show you even just how this simple greeting, this simple salutations uh, from John would have been a great encouragement to the church. And actually what I did, we had Corey read actually verses 9 through 11, just so you get a little bit of the context. And here's John. He says, John, in verse 9, John, your brother and your partner in the tribulation. I think your translation said suffering. My translation says in the tribulation, the kingdom and the patient endurance. 
Okay, and right off the bat, uh, I'll just mention this. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it, but it's an example of, you know, some of how we've complicated the book of Revelation. Maybe, you know, if you've grown up in the church, you've maybe heard discussions, maybe even debates about this mysterious thing called the tribulation. And it's gotten all wrapped up and associated with end time stuff. And right. And then there's all these questions and conversations and debates. How long is the tribulation going to be? When's it going to take place? Is the church going to be here for the tribulation? Are we going to get raptured out before the tribulation? When does Jesus come? All this stuff. Right. And that's fine. You can debate that till you're, you're blue in the face. It's fine. But here's an example of where we have overcomplicated the book. If you listen to John in the opening chapter, he's saying to the church, I, John, Brother and partner with you in the tribulation or the great suffering. And again, in my translation, the tribulation. See, for John, all these debates and discussions that are taking place now will be kind of weird to John because for him, his life was this, in a way, climactic tribulation that was expected by the church. Right? Where is John writing from? Patmos where he's imprisoned, where he's exiled because he's become enamored with Jesus and he's gone around starting to talk about Jesus and tell people about Jesus and some people got offended by it and the authorities got offended by it and so they kicked him away. They kicked him away from his home, from his family, from his life. They exiled him in prison on the island of Patmos. So for him, his life is the great suffering. It is tribulation. And for John, you know, the churches that he's writing to are starting to feel this as well too. Uh, this is coming towards the end of the first century. And by this time, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, meant you are part of a religion that at best was considered a superstitio, you know, this weird superstitious religion. At worst, it was actually outlawed in various points in the Roman, you know, in the Roman world. Which meant to become a follower of Jesus, to align yourself with him and become a part of your church meant uh, life was starting to get a little difficult. It was going to starting to be painful. You were starting to be ostracized from relationships, whether it was with your family or whether, you know, with friends or neighbors. It was getting hard to support yourself, to work, to have a job, feed your family. Uh, and there actually was physical persecution that was starting to take place. This is probably written after uh, the reign of Nero. And if you know about Nero, among other things, kind of gone crazy at the end, but he was horrible towards Christians at various points. He's tried to inflame all sorts of distrust and animosity towards Christians and just absolutely brutal. Some of the ways that he literally tortured uh, Christians. I won't uh, go into some of the graphic details of that, but you can look it up. It's just despicable, right? And they're starting to experience that. And so, you know, we that's not necessarily stuff that we're experiencing right now. And so we maybe don't understand it, but we can maybe put ourselves in that in that mindset, we can maybe think what it must have been like to endure that. Like you can think what it must have been like to, you know, on a Sunday morning have to be walking with your family to some private or undisclosed location because it wasn't safe to worship in a public place. Or you can maybe think about what it might have been like to be, you know, a father who was struggling to provide for his kids because he could no longer work in the carpentry union because he refused to go to some of the worship services that all the trade unions would do to their patron god, their patron deity. And so now they were kicked out of their trade union and they couldn't, you know, work in that field anymore. So he's having a hard time providing for his families, for his kids. 
You know, you can think maybe about a young person or a spouse who hears about Jesus and decides to entrust their life to Jesus and to follow him and to identify with him. And now they got to go tell, you know, their parents or their spouse that they're joining this weird cultish religion that is being outlawed across the Roman Empire. Or, or just even more broadly, maybe you put yourself in the mindset of somebody who's in the ancient world looking around and just taking notice that Rome has conquered the known world and is essentially ruling the known world, uh, you know, through its massive military might and its storehouses of wealth. And as you're starting to feel the squeeze from the Roman authorities and as you're feeling the strained relationships and the hardships that come with identifying to Christ, maybe, just maybe the thought enters into your mind or maybe the thought enters into John's mind when he's been kicked out of his home and his family and everything. He's exiled on the island of Patmos. What am I doing? You know, am I, am I really aligned with the right side of history here? Like, what in the world? What in the world is God up to? What in the world is Jesus up to? Like, what is this all for? And so it's into that that John writes this letter. And it's into that that even just this simple greeting, salutations, is actually a word of encouragement. He says, grace and peace to you from the one who was and is and is yet to come. It's a reference to God the Father, eternal creator who was there from the beginning, who was there present, who would be there into all eternity. It's a phrase that actually gets repeated again in verse 8. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, the one who was, and who is yet to come. Again, it's a reference to God the Father, Him being there from eternity on into eternity. And it's also a statement of His sovereign authority over eternity. Especially when He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's, you know, the, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Basically, God's saying, I am the, I am the beginning of it all. I'm the one from whom all life originated, the one from whom all life began, and I am the end of it all. I am the one who brings life to its appointed end. Not, not, you know, ending per se, but to its appointed goal and purpose that I have for it, which means that he's the sovereign authority over everything in between. It's him saying, I am the one who created life, I'm the one who brings it to its divine purpose, and I'm the one who's going to get it there. And nothing, no power, no military might, no wealth, no nothing is going to get in the way of what I intend for the life that I have given to my people. I have held on to that sovereign authority and I give it to no one. So grace and peace to you from him who was and is and is yet to come. Grace and peace to you from the seven spirits around the throne, which, without diving into all of that here this morning, we'll just say this is giving you a taste of what Revelation is going to do. It uses numbers and symbols and pictures. And so here again, we've got this number seven, this number of completeness and wholeness. And the other thing Revelation does is it quotes a lot from the Old Testament, especially the prophets like Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, and Isaiah. He's probably quoting here from Zechariah chapter 4, where in another apocalyptic letter, uh, the writer has this vision of these seven lamps, which he was told represent God's Holy Spirit, who builds his temple, builds his church. 
kind of the point of the whole point of the chapter is it's not by might, not by strength, but by the Spirit of the Lord is the temple. It's God's church built. Again, which is all to say, I can't dive into all of it here this morning, but just see, seven spirits, that's probably just a representation to the Holy Spirit in all of its fullness who builds his church. So grace and peace to you from God the Father, grace and peace to you from God the Spirit, and grace and peace to you from Jesus, the Son, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Again, can't stress enough, Revelation is not a book about how it is Jesus will one day become king over all creation and how one day his kingdom will be established and one day he will soon be ruler of the kings of the earth. No, you see from the very beginning, from page one, John is wanting to be explicitly clear that Jesus right now is the coronated ruler, king over all the kings of the earth. He is the faithful witness. He is the one who has already defeated the power of death as he is the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of the great resurrection, victory from the dead. And he is now the enthroned ruler over all the kings of the earth. And as such, he is beginning to execute that purpose of the eternal God the Father. It says there, uh, he is making us in verse 5 and 6, 5 and 6, a kingdom. He's making us a priesthood. Right? He's beginning to unfold the purposes of God the Father for his church. Why? Because he is already the enthroned king who has the power now to do that. Right? And so that this all to say, this is why John says, I, John, your brother and your partner with you in the tribulation, which is now, and the kingdom, which is now, Which raises one of the most fundamental questions that had to be going on in the mind of the listeners. How do those things, two things go together? How in the world am I starting to experience and live into the kingdom of Christ and yet I suffer and experience tribulation? How is it that Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth, even over Caesar, and yet I suffer at the hand of Rome? How is it that God is the one who was and who is and who is yet to come and who is the Alpha and Omega and controls everything in between and yet, by his sovereign authority, and yet I suffer at the hands of his enemies? How do these two things go together, the kingdom of Christ and my present suffering and tribulation? (laughs) And not to leave you with a cliffhanger, but that's precisely, in part, what the whole book is going to be meant to address. And so we're going to get there. We're going to talk through that. Hang with me. We'll get there. <laughs> but even just this morning, here's what John wants to say to the church. He wants to kind of lift the curtain just a little bit and help them to see that in their suffering, and in their trial, and in the situation that they're living, well, certainly among other things, they're not doing that alone, but they're doing it in the company of their triune God. They're doing that. They're living their life, including their hardship, in the company of, in the fellowship of, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you're kind of lifting that curtain just a little bit closer, a little bit higher, so that they see that even their suffering and their tribulation, all that they're going through, it's part of this even grander drama that is taking place, that God is working all around them. They have like brought into this great redemptive drama, this kingdom work, this kingdom mission that God has for them, and he is sending them on. 
And that's kind of the, the, you know, the opening word, you know, to this church. Let me pull the curtain up. Let me broaden your perspective, your horizon, so that you see that what you're experiencing, man, there is bigger stuff going on here. And before we even dive into half of it, the first thing you need to see is that all that you are experiencing, all that you are living is being lived in the company of your creator, the son, who is the enthroned, king of all the kings of the earth and the spirit who inhabits and who is building his church. And you are being drawn into this great kingdom, redemptive operation, this great kingdom mission. You know, and that would have been really encouraging news to the church, a very simple reminder, but something that they needed to hear, something they needed to read aloud every week and be reminded of and would have been of great encouragement to them. And I think it should be of great encouragement to us as well too. Right, because... You know, even just looking out here, I, I, you know, maybe we're not experiencing the tribulation that they would ex- would have been experiencing or the trial and the persecution and all that they're going through. But man, I know there are a lot of people here suffering in their own unique way. As we've already prayed, as man, there are people here suffering, grieving the loss of a loved one. The Schmidt family, you know, John out in Chicago, you know, preparing to bury his father because, you know, this concoction of a terrible disease and COVID has you know, taken his father from him. Or the Caldwell family, or yeah, Dennis Dragon trying to figure out how to do life without Lois these days, right? Well, I know there's some of you who, you know, are dealing with physical illness and bodily, you know, pain and suffering. Some of you have just come out of surgeries over this past week and are staring down some weeks of physical therapy. Some of you are waiting for surgery, surgery to deal with sort of cancerous situations that might be going on. Some of you are watching loved ones go through some painful operations and the recovery processes of all that. That's painful. Some of you are stressed out at work because of the whole variety of things going on, just making work life just miserable these days. Some of you are dealing with emotional struggles, some of which has been longstanding, some of which might just be being brought on by this time of year. <laughs> you know, the general seasonal affective disorder that comes in January and February or whatever. Some of you are dealing with relational struggles, which we all know can be very painful. Some of you are dealing with the painful effects painful lingering effects of just brute sinfulness, whether it's sinfulness in your own life or sin that's been done to you. And that's painful and that's hard and it's difficult. And here's the thing, right? Anytime we suffer, anytime we experience that pain and hardship, we all know that that can so easily become the all-consuming thing. Right? When we're dealing with difficulty and painful stuff, it's like we get tunnel vision just because it's just sort of natural. Like that just becomes the dominant thing in our life, the dominant, you know, thing that consumes our life. It's the, you know, the thought that hits us when we wake up in the morning. It's the stuff we can't escape all throughout the day. It's the closing thoughts as we shut our eyes at night on our pillow. And so can you see how, how it would be so important for John to just say, okay, yep, I get that. Let me, let me lift the curtain a little bit for you, right? So that you can see around you that... What you're experiencing, the hardship that you're enduring, the suffering that you're going, can you just see? Let me just lift the curtain so just that you see that you are not enduring that on your own, but you are enduring that in the company of the eternal creator who alone has sovereign authority over all the affairs of history. You're doing that in the company of Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness to God and all of his goodness and glory, the one who has already conquered the power of death, the one who has been enthroned as the ruler of all the kings of the earth. You're living that life in the company of the Holy Spirit who delights to be near to you 
and to be delights to build you and his whole church family according to God's eternal purposes. Man, let me lift that curtain just a little bit higher for you so that you can see that, yeah, this stuff that you're suffering and experiencing, don't forget too, that you're being drawn into even this greater redemptive drama that God has freed you from your sins by his blood because of his love for you. He's drawing you into this great work of salvation. He is drawing you into this great kingdom mission. He is drawing you into this great movement towards new creation where people from every tongue, tribe, and nation throughout all of history are going to be gathered together because they've been liberated from the power of sin and death. And man, one day going to experience that to the full and just be consumed with songs of joy and celebration and glorious new creation. Right? You are drawn into all this. And so as the curtains are lifted and your, your gaze gets off with just a little bit of your suffering and your hardship and you see some of that, you see the company of Father, Son, Spirit, you see this great drama that you're drawn into, then you hear these words to you too. Grace and peace. Grace and peace from this Father and this Son and this Spirit. God's favor and his blessing to you. In the midst of that, not because you've earned it or not because you have, you know, worked hard and strived for it such that you can now stand up and hear God say to you, yes, sir, grace and peace to you. No, it's because he loves you, because your creator loves you, because Jesus loves you so much so that he was willing to free you from your sins by his blood. He was willing to suffer and endure the agony of the cross. He was willing to endure his own suffering, his own tribulation, to stand with you because he loves you and he cares for you. And because of that, right? if you hear this, the words of this prophetic word to the church, if you hear it and you receive it and you keep it and you align yourself with it and you trust your life to it, blessed are you because you're a recipient of his grace and peace. And if that's remotely good news for you this morning, if the Spirit is remotely encouraging you with that or remotely nourishing you or equipping you for this patient endurance, just wait. <laughs> we haven't even got started yet. This is just a greeting. It only gets even better from there. Which hopefully so you can see why I'm excited because I think there's, there's going to be great stuff in this book. And I'm excited for how the Spirit will take these words delivered to these churches and today apply it to our life and to the things that we experience and what it means to follow him in the kingdom, in the trials, and in the patient endurance. So that all things, and in and through all things, he would be glorified, we would grow together, and we would be sent out to accomplish faithfully all that he has for us. And so we pray today and throughout this whole series to him who has loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, and made us a priest, a servants to our God. To him be glory and power and dominion forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.